Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast at hours two. I am, of course, your co-host, TJ, the ever-emotionally-needy Pisces, and I am joined this week by a very special guest, Matt Connolly, who I will let introduce himself a little bit. Hi, thank you so much. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I'm Matt Connolly. I am also a Pisces, uh, which I guess is a nice little synergy of signs for this podcast. Um, I'm also a assistant professor of film studies uh, at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and a great lover of all things queer film, including John Waters. Yes, which brings us to um, this week's film, which of course is Serial Mom. But before that, I do want to just, you know, underscore what Matt said earlier, that we are two Pisces coming together. He's not much of an astrology gay, but we'll forgive him that, that foible. Um, but it is exciting here at Queens to have a fellow Pisces. That is so rarely the case. Usually I'm subjected to fire signs or sometimes the occasional earth signs. So it's kind of nice to have <laughs> someone who actually is simpatico, astrologically speaking. So just pre- prepare all of you listeners for, you know, a meeting of great minds. And you should all consider yourself very fortunate because your favorite Pisces, that is me, is currently recovering from COVID. But that be that as it may, I am determined to keep going with our delightful discover, disco- yeah, sc- sorry, discussion of Serial Mom. So why don't we give just a brief summary of what the film is about, and then we can use that as a jumping off point to talk about uh, what we found most exciting about the movie. So since you're my guest, Matt, why don't you give us a summary of the movie? Oh, Serial Mom is about a middle-class housewife, Beverly Sutphin, um, who seems to have a very kind of typical middle-class life, husband, two kids, suburbia. Uh, Not sure if it's literally a white picket fence, but maybe figuratively a white picket fence. Um, her one foible is that she has a lot of very specific, uh, mores and rules, and if people break them and or offend her family, she kills them. And the movie is about a series, an increasing series of murders that she commits. Uh, she is eventually discovered by her family and eventually by the police and is eventually, uh, arrested for these murders. But as it turns out, the public generally tends to like her. They nickname her Serial Mom. They don't seem to mind that she has, is a serial murderess. She goes on trial. She uh, eventually defends herself against the charges. She is uh, acquitted of all charges due to her expert defense work of herself. And uh, we are led to believe a movie will be made about her life starring Suzanne Somers. That is a marvelously succinct yet very detailed um, summary, so kudos <laughs> to that. So we'll take a brief break, and then we'll be right back to sort of launch right into the discussion. Okay, so I have to say that it's been about a decade since I've seen this film, and I chose it because I knew that you have had experience and expertise as a scholar with John Waters and his oeuvre. So I was like, well, why don't we have Matt come on? Because I know he would be a good person to give perspective about this movie. And it's one I think that a lot of people may not necessarily be as aware of in terms of John Waters' repertoire. And I, But I, I remember enjoying the movie when I watched it previously, but I don't remember having a lot to say about it. But that's one of the things that I think was most refreshing about watching it a decade on after having finished a PhD in film studies. I was like, wow, this film is actually very sophisticated and a remarkable like takedown of true crime obsession which 
given how much that is even now more of a phenomenon than it was in the early 90s when this film came out, it's even more extraordinary. Absolutely. I, I That's something I noticed upon rewatch, too, is, I mean, clearly he, Heaping Waters, has had a longstanding interest in the kind of crime media kind of, you know, relationship. Um, and partly this movie is obviously riffing off of the 90s era version of true crime dateline and whatever but i agree there's i mean as with many things he's very prescient and i think the way this movie foresees where the culture went in terms of true crime obsession is uh one of the many things that make it uh still quite uh pack a certain comic and satiric punch yeah absolutely i mean there's so many homages and references to early 90s culture in particular which you know as a kid growing up in that period like they mentioned a current affair and i was like wow that's a phrase i haven't heard you know in about 20 years so i those are the things that make it both very much of its time but also very as you say very prescient in that regard but i would be remiss if i didn't mention the thing that draws me to this film again and again which of course is kathleen turner and i think also is what gives it its queer bite i mean obviously there's waters himself who is you know a queer auteur and you know is certainly looms large in the sort of queer public imaginary but i do think that there's something very queer about kathleen turner like she's not necessarily one of the great queer icons like we're not like talking about betty davis or joan crawford um but there is something very queer-esque about her, and I can understand why a lot of queer men would be drawn to her. I think that's partly explains why this film has such a gay following. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's something... I think there's something about her... I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about her her skills as an actress, as a comic actress, um, and her kind of her presence in this movie, but yeah, there is something also quite kind of iconic about her her star presence and her star role that I think Waters is, you know, goes beyond this movie, but I think Waters picks up on um, in a very interesting and singular way. I think there's other um, performances by Kathleen Turner that are really wonderful. Maybe we'll, you know, mention some of those, but I don't think she's ever really given a performance quite like this before. And I think that's really one of the things that makes the movie very special. Yeah, can you elaborate? Like, what is it that you think makes this particular performance so special from Turner? Because I agree with you. Um, just, I mean, I'm familiar with, like, you know, Romancing the Stone or, you know, The Jewel of the Nile, which was sort of her big hits from the 80s. Yeah. But I agree with you that there's something very specific about this exact performance that is that sets her apart in terms of her other filmography. But what, what draws you in particular to it? That's a good question. You know, I think there's something about Kathleen Turner, and, I mean, I, I make no claims to being a Turner you know, uh, a Turner file in terms of having a complete <laughs> knowledge of her career. But thinking about the big roles that made her famous, and obviously you mentioned Rancing the Stone and Jewel the Nile, um, I think about things like Body Heat or mm-hmm. things like Peggy Sue Got Married or even um, when she voiced Jessica Rabbit and who framed Roger Rabbit. Um, and there is a quality, I think, to her work in the 80s that, um, that is, there is something kind of a little bit I don't want to say there's like in quotes in terms of like there's something arc or false about her acting because I think she's a very present, very vivid actress. But a lot of these roles have a certain pastness or like quotation quality to them. Like in Body Heat, she's like a riff on a 40s femme fatale. And Peggy Sue got married. She's a woman from the 80s who literally travels back to the to 1960, right? Um, so I think there is that that self-awareness or that sort of self-conscious quality about a lot of her most famous roles. And I think what's cool about Serial Mom is, you know, it's uh, she's bringing a lot of that into this role and to the sort of 
stereotype or sort of archetype at least of the the perfect housewife which of course the movie set in the 90s but it has a kind of weirdly like 60s sort of kind of beaver cleaver quality to it um and i think she really plays off that tension really really well um there is something very arc and very mannered in some in some aspects of her performance but there's also a kind of at times an almost kind of like jarring intensity um to it which i think is very funny but also is very uh engaging as a viewer Yes, I think that's a very brilliant way of putting it, actually, because that was exactly what I was thinking about as you were expounding on this was, you know, I alluded to earlier that she's not like a Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, but she is in the to the extent that I think she's deliberately adopting that mannerism. Like there is an there is a reference to uh, Joan Crawford when her son is watching um, one of Joan Crawford's like axe murderer (laughs) films. So and I agree with you that I think that that's a persona that. Kathleen Turner is adopting with this like she is it's as if she is Kathleen Turner pretending to be like Joan Crawford or Betty Davis like there's a sense in which there's like a layered performance going on here that I think becomes most apparent in the ending like when she's having that confrontation with Suzanne Somers because Suzanne Somers is like trying to like micromanage where she's supposed to appear in front of the camera she's like Suzanne Somers that is my bad side (laughs) and then but it's not just that. It's like because then that cuts to the moment when they discover uh, Patty Hearst's dead body, and then there's that moment which is when um, Beverly looks at Suzanne Summers, and Suzanne Summers looks at her, and like her face is frozen in this, as you say, this really intense but also very self conscious and almost camp yeah. moment, per, like affect, and then it freezes. So which of course heightens the camp of it all. Um, and then of course there's the 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 fake. Beverly Stephan refused to, you know, cooperate. So I think that that's part of what is so brilliant about Turner's performance here and why I think it's so, you know, easily appropriated by queer audiences is because it's calling attention to the artificiality of female performance. Um, Particularly, like, as you you rightly point out, like, suburban house mother, housewife performativity. Absolutely. I mean, and of course, I mean, and this is not just the performance, it's obviously the script too, but I think she embodies this so amazingly you know, so many of the things that set off Beverly are these, um, are the ways that people transgress certain types of social norms. This obviously mm-hmm. comes to the head with, I mean, you know, the reason Patricia, uh, the reason Patty Hearst's character had to die is because she wore white shoes after Labor Day, which I really, Patty Hearst obviously is not like um, an actress by by calling, but she does a very funny thing in the Waters movies, and I love the line when she says, "You know, fashion has changed." <laughs> and Kathleen Turner just smacks her with the telephone, and says, "No, it hasn't." No, um, <laughs> it hasn't. Oh, I love it. It's one of my fa- It's literally one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Me too. But I think she really. I think one of the things that's really wonderful about Turner's performance is I think she really gets the humor of that, and 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 like you said, the kind of the kind of queer camp of that, like this this you know psychotic overinvestment in kind of social propriety and how you can it's like you can be so invested in normality that it completely ends up like you know falling over itself and you become you know a a mass murderer to be able to maintain these sort of seemingly very sort of trivial or kind of um random social roles right i mean and it's so interesting in that regard like you said that the film even though it's obviously very much set in looks like an early 90s film is also very much like poking fun at nostalgia and the which is even potent even in the early 90s maybe not as much as it was in the 80s but there is still that sort of hearkening back to 
the 50s as this golden age. And I think that part of what gives Serial Mom its, like, fierceness is that it's relentlessly skewering that, because it does sort of point out the deep pathology that's always inherent in sort of white bourgeois, you know, suburban life. And I mean, everything about the film, including Turner's performance, I think heightens that just how artificial and how deeply diseased, really, all of that is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and there's something... I mean, this movie is funny because I think it's... It's a movie that I think wants us to, and the one, as I completely agree, it wants us to see the kind of suburban milieu that it's set in in a very deeply satiric... Like, it's a pretty savage movie in a lot of ways in terms mm-hmm. of how it indicts suburbia. And at the same time, which I think also is kind of an interesting kind of element of the... Can- it's like, it also wants us to be... Um, at least somewhat invested or, or somewhat root for this figure who is like the embodiment of like suburbia, the kind of, the kind of white middle-class suburban mom. Um, but of course who also is like becomes so invested in the role that she kind of like comes out the other side of it in this kind of perverse violent way. Yes. And I mean, I think that's part of why, what makes Turner so perfect for this role. Cause she's so well put together throughout this movie. Like, yes. uh, like Beverly is always put together. Like she's always wearing the exact right thing her hair is always exactly done part of the reason she succeeds so well at the public theater of you know of her trial is that she looks the part of you know everyone's perfectly normal mother so it becomes almost impossible to believe that she would be capable of such horrible crimes and that she is able to manipulate others so skillfully um is a testament to both Beverly as a character, but also Kathleen Turner as a performer. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, there are those great, like, those great cracks in that facade. I mean, some of which almost seem like, like, you know, like she can't help herself. But other times they're very, very controlled. Like, I mean, in the, obviously in the courtroom when she, I mean, I guess I'm assuming this is kind of a, a kind of a satiric nod to basic instinct a couple years Mm -hmm. earlier, right? When she tries to kind of... (laughs) draw the eye of one of the of the witnesses away um in a very particular way i mean obviously at some point i'm sure we'll talk about the first time that crack happens when we see her on the phone um with Ming Stoll's character which never fails to make me laugh i mean and literally kind of like that kind of perfect that that pitch perfect voice i mean there's obviously the whole idea of kathleen turner's amazing voice but the way that she can pitch that voice to sound like the perfect suburban mother and then drop an octave and she becomes this kind of monstrous prank caller uh is i think a really nice example of that too yeah let's talk about that because i think that that's one of them like it's both one of the best moments in the film and it's happened so early because you know we've already heard from her neighbor beverly or sorry her neighbor uh, was it rosemary that yeah you know someone's been calling mink Stoll's character and you know making these obscene phone calls and then we of course realize that it's beverly who's doing it. she's like is this four two five pussy way and it's just <laughs> it is one of the most brilliant moments in the entire film and i think even in like kathleen turner's like entire like performing life it is just as you say it's brilliantly funny um because of course it's and it's layered in its humor because it's obviously drawing attention to kathleen turner's own androgynous voice because she has a very like deep husky sort of lana turner not lana turner but uh laura mccall-esque voice and i think that that's a very sly and subtle reference to the way that she is clearly has a little bit of androgyny, at least in terms of her vocal performance. Oh yeah, I mean, and also Ming Stoll. I guess I guess her character's name is Dottie Hinkle, which a lot of a lot of great names in this movie. Yes. Um, who and of course Ming Stoll is obviously one of the only, um, probably the most prominent of Waters' kind of old kind of 
70s era dreamland people in this movie um also gives a very very funny performance um and of course she immediately snaps right back and you know they're calling each other all kinds of obscenities um i also think to, to your point i like that scene a lot one thing that i'd kind of forgotten until rewatching it this time is initially the way waters kind of sets up that scene like there's no real seeming reason why beverly is kind of tormenting Dottie, which gives it like Eventually, we find out she's doing this because Dottie stole a parking spot from her in like the in like a, a mall or a supermarket parking lot. So there is that it sets up that obviously the kind of like you know breach of social norm equals you have to be you know tortured and eventually uh, potentially I mean, murdered. Just, but <laughs> just to intercede for a moment, I yeah. too would take revenge against someone who took a parking spot from me. Like I like Beverly hold a grudge, so it's a very Pisces trait. Just so you know. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, like exactly. You know. <laughs> But and and obviously like that, that that itself is is has this kind of satiric bite to it. But I think it adds something to the scene that initially it just seems like this complete like you know kind of explosion of of id or something that mm-hmm. like you kind of Beverly who was so put together suddenly just out of nowhere and not only is like calling her you know a cocksucker and you know, a motherfucker and everything but also like takes such pleasure in it like she takes yes. such delight and just tormenting this woman and it's very it is very funny and it does very much draw like you said upon like in part upon the way that she's playing with her with her voice with her affect with kind of the whole i mean beverly's whole um persona but also by extension uh, turner's whole persona too right and i love what i love about turner's performance is that as you say like you can see from the twinkle in her eye just how much savage glee she is taking on this taking in this tormenting of Dottie. but I, to me like also it sort of reaches its apotheosis in the the moment in the courtroom where she's like you know she whispers from behind her hand fuck you <laughs> and she's i i love the way like that is another of those moments where like I do, you know, I can see why people think this is a hilarious movie. Because then Dottie's like, did you see that? She just said, fuck you to me. And then <laughs> I, I used to imitate this moment because it's just so well done. Then Beverly says, let the record show that I'm merely standing here. Like, it is just so, it is just so funny. Like, I can't, it's one of those things like I just, it, you, it's impossible to, to convey the uproariousness of this unless you actually watch it. Just because it's yeah. so well constructed as a comedic scene. And it's a testament to... Even though obviously Waters is not always known as being like ha ha funny, it's more like you know searing funny. But this is one of those really ha ha funny moments that come up in this movie. Oh yeah, and I think there is like in part there is a level of, and this is not to. I mean, I I adore the kind of more um, the kind of really truly over the top kind of high high octane Waters performance styles of like the seventies movies. But um, I think there is something about the relative control that everyone exerts in this movie, and I think both. Kathleen Turner and Stoll, it's like they, they really have a lot of nuance and dexterity in how they play that scene. So it is mm-hmm. it is very funny, and I think part of that is like every little, like you said, every little facial movement, every little eye twinkle is really, really calibrated. Um, yes, and, and it makes it, it, yeah, I agree that. I mean, the whole courtroom final sequence is hilarious, but that particular line, especially when Mingstoll just starts like just just 
just explodes and just can't help herself and just starts like <laughs> screaming obscenities at her. She's you know, motherfucker, pig fucker, and it's just it's just it is a brilliant moment of like the unruly femininity that is that Waters has always so well exceeded or sorry excelled in creating like this moment when as you like t- you said earlier like this id like this Dottie just explodes in this moment of pure rage of <laughs> id fueled rage that seems so. <laughs> It's part of what makes it so strange and jarring is it seems so disproportionate to yes. what I mean, both for the people in the courtroom, but also for us in the audience. Like, yeah. it's just like, okay, wow, she has really lost her mind. <laughs> but of course, you know, Beverly herself has also kind of lost her mind too. So it's all about unruly women, just sort of dis, dis, completely disposing with the conventions of, you know, suburban femininity. femininity. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, and I, I think, like you said, part of the pleasure of that, that that moment, so many moments, is, you know, using, like, you, in part, like, so skillfully manipulating the role of suburban femininity, suburban niceness, kind of feminine propriety, and then finding moments to just totally rip back the curtain for a second, and then mm-hmm. j- just to just to needle at somebody, and then be able to turn it back on, and then it's, yeah, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the brilliance of Beverly as a character is that she knows, like, she's not just someone who buys into the ideology full throat. Like, she yeah. knows how to use it to her own advantage. Like, she understands the way that people assume women are supposed to behave. And so she uses that to her advantage in the courtroom, you know, to manipulate Mink Stoll, to manipulate the other guy who's, you know, saw her in the bathroom at the antique mall. You know, she understands the masquerade of femininity in a way that I don't know that any of the other characters really do. Oh, totally. And I will say, I mean, that's one thing, and I'm, I'm curious to, to kind of hear your perspective on this too. Like that to me is one of the really interesting things about Serial Mom is that I feel like it's a movie that, like, I think you can imagine a version of this movie where that self-consciousness that Beverly has about the kind of performance of femininity is um, almost taken further, where it's like she kind of, like, we, where it's like, oh, it is clear that this is entirely an act, that she has no investment in it, that it's all a performance. Um, and I think the movie doesn't quite do that, because I think it's what's interesting about her as a character is that she does seem to have these investments Mm-hmm. in some ways in kind of in, in kind of the kind of suburban feminine role um even as she also seems distanced from them i think that's something that's actually very in the way it's written in the way it's performed i think there's actually kind of an interesting tension there like i feel like the movie doesn't quite land on one one interpretation or one um way that we're supposed to understand her which i think gives the movie actually a lot of a lot of juice like in terms of in terms of comedy and in terms of um our investment in her as a character. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that part of what makes this film so rich and worth of, you know, worthy the kind of like deep dive reading that we're doing is precisely because we're never really given a secure final answer as to who exactly Beverly is. Like, I mean, it's, as you say, it's clear that she, to some degree, buys into the ideology. But, yeah. if, you know, because she obviously cares deeply about her family and the sort of upholding the mores of the neighborhood in, you know, whatever form that may take, whether it's wearing white after Labor Day or recycling or what have you. <laughs> but as you, as we've, you know, as we've outlined, she also knows how to use that to get her to her own advantage. And so, like, it's the, the film sort of makes us in, inhabit that uncomfortable contradiction or that there's sort of two different attitudes. And I think that's part of what makes it so fun to sort of think about and, like, sit with is that, like the best movies, it doesn't really give us the answer 
And I think that may also help explain why it wasn't a huge like box office success at the time, just because it doesn't really land in a specific identifiable ideological place, which, you know, for an era like the 90s coming out of the 80s would was not particularly like well received and even like some of the critics didn't like it like ebert was really perplexed by beverly as a character because he felt like she was i think he was responding to what we've just been identifying which is that sort of irresolvable contradiction at the heart of her character and rather than like celebrating that i think he sort of did not appreciate it i agree yeah i remember it is striking to me that like ebert almost seems a little bit like taken aback where he's kind of like you know well i you know almost like Turner seems to be, if, if I recall his, his review, it's like, oh, like she's almost playing it straight. Like, like almost like, oh, like Beverly has some kind of like kind of mental imbalance that like yep. Turner is playing straight and that we're supposed to be uncomfortable laughing at because it is being played straight, which I, you know, I, I love Roger Ebert. I don't think that's really the, the most accurate <laughs> interpretation no, I of think this it's, movie, but <laughs> I think it's a very straight way of reading this movie. It's a very yeah. straight male way of reading what this movie is doing, and I think that part of the reason that I, like that queer people in particular are so attuned to it is because they recognize the you know they recognize the camp affect of it, but also like the the layers and complexity that that Turner is bringing to this. So that we're not necessarily at least I'm not laughing at Beverly. I'm usually laughing with her. Because I feel like she's in on the joke to a degree, at least. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like to the extent that, to the extent that we're meant to like laugh, and, and I feel like I mean part of like the kind of the pleasures of camp, right? Is like like that it does kind of like you know make the laugh at laugh with you know binary a little bit a little bit moot, right? Because I feel like there, mm-hmm. there are moments where like if to the extent that I'm ever laughing at her, it's like I'm laughing at how how she how like campily perfectly she is sort of doing certain kind of middle-class housewife stuff like i mean there you know there are just certain line readings where um especially once you know kind of like obviously what she's been doing like there's a part in the mid part of the movie where you know obviously she's been killing people and also she has a certain investment in these violent movies which of course her son is also invested in and then Mm -hmm. when and then when she's accused of having uh, a subscription to Premiere magazine because one of the P's at a Premiere is used to, you know, um, <laughs> to make a, a note to Dottie Hunkel, which is like, you know, whatever. So something I've seen, she's like something to the effect of like, you know, oh, I, you know, I don't read about movies; they're so violent. And just like the, the way she says that line, I mean, it, it, it is very self-conscious, but like it is a really great, it's a great kind of line reading that kind of it kind of sends up the kind of the kind of middle class propriety in a very mm-hmm. kind of specific and fun and very funny way. Yeah, and there's also, like, that moment when she's talking to the police when they first come. She's like, I've never even said the P word out loud. Like, <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, a great line reading, too, by Sam Waterston right after that, no woman would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about Sam Waterston a little bit, because, I, you know, I know we've we've gushed about Kathleen Turner, and rightly so, but, yeah. you know, I, like many other people, I've also had a longstanding crush on Sam Waterston from his days on Law and Order, but also yes. obviously for being Grace and Frankie. But he also, because we talked a lot, we've talked a lot about, or alluded to the way that this film plays it straight, which is part of what gives it the camp because it's it's playing it so straight, but also not. And he, he's a big part of why that succeeds so well because he plays the straight man, both like in terms of sexuality, but also just in terms of like his narrative role, just so well. Yes. <laughs> like, but also with just the faintest hint of irony, like just the, the slightest like facial gesture or facial like tick that'll suggest that he's also in on the joke. 
Um, not the character, but the actor is. And so I think that that's, you know, obviously Waterston is one of the most brilliant actors of his generation. And I think that it's so weird to see him in this movie. Cause I mean, he was like getting ready to be in law and order for like 20 years at yeah. this point. So like, it's just so interesting to see what someone of Waterston's stature be in a John Waters movie like this. So I don't know. Like I, I, I love his performance too. Me too. I mean, I mean, it, it certainly adds, I guess with like hindsight, it does add an extra layer of deliciousness to the performance to know that, yeah, like within a year he'd be joining Law and Order, right? I think, and, and of course, like you said, would that become the role that in many ways kind of for better for sort of to, to define his career? Um, I agree. Yeah, there is something, you know, right from the very beginning that that kind of opening breakfast table scene um, and the way that he, you know, has this kind of, you know. Th- it's not really a confidence, but just, just just this kind of like obliviousness that sort of comes off as confidence. Um, early on, I mean, this movie obviously has a lot of jokes about sort of the criminal justice system and the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I love that there's a great kind of just how blithely he's reading the newspaper. The, uh, I think his name is Eugene. The husband's reading the newspaper and he's talking. He's reading some story about you know like a like an education and prison program, and you know, and everybody's like, oh, that's nice, you know, and then you know, he shouldn't be he shouldn't be getting he should be getting the death penalty you know it's, yep. and he says it like a couple of times it's like there's a way that he he really knows how to make those lines funny and sort of adding just the right level of kind of kind of puffery and obliviousness to it um which again obviously starts to kind of break apart over the course of the movie as he learns more and more about his wife the the scene when he finds all of her serial killer paraphernalia under the bed and his, his reactions is, are also like some of the funniest things in the movie, I think. I know. Cause one of the, I mean, obviously a lot of people know about Watterson's sort of ability to deliver like searing fi- final speeches in law and order, or even in like somewhat in Grace and Frankie, but he also plays perplexed so well. Like there's a sort of like the way that he captures, like the way his eyes bugged out just slightly and the way that he just gets this look of stupefaction on his face <laughs> As I mean, you see this sometimes with Saul and Grace and Frankie, but you see it really remarkably here in Serial Mom, you know, because I think that Eugene, like Eugene, just seems so poleaxed by every new revelation that comes out, and and, he, and I I I love just the sort of wide-eyed naivete that that he's that Watterson gives him, especially for someone who, as you have already said, is so flippantly handling out the death penalty which he does throughout the movie but ironically not with his wife even though you know it's pretty even though he comes to accept that his wife is a psychopathic killer pretty quickly oh yeah i like i mean i feel like there are several funny shots of people you know reading books in this movie but there's one i think during the trial when he's it's like the case against the death penalty that you see him reading kind of in the in the in the court stands yeah and he has a little no gas chamber um uh, button on his on his lapel during the yeah no exactly I, it's it it's not something the movie like makes a huge deal out of but i think it does do do that kind of i think the movie obviously has some very obvious satiric targets but it does it has the kind of lower level satiric targets mm-hmm. um does very well too i guess i guess obviously this becomes a little more obvious um in the scene in the church when the pastor is essentially making the full-throated christian case for the death penalty right <laughs> Yeah, which all this hits different now that I live in Maryland, because like you know, oh true, like, yeah, yeah. And they mentioned the Eastern Shore, which is actually which is where they're going to go birding, which is actually where I live right now. So I was like, oh, I know where that is. So. That's true. I hadn't I hadn't even put that together. That's right, because you yes, yeah, some of the Maryland connections are like your like daily life now. Yeah, and a good. I just went to Baltimore to visit a good friend of mine last week. Oh. So yeah, I was like, 
it all it all came together. Like this all really came together. Um, but what also like strikes me is particularly like you say like the lower level satiric targets. I'm thinking about the scene where Beverly and Eugene are having sex, and like because it's one of those like the movie for the most part is rather restrained for a Waters film. Like yeah. I mean, there are moments which I want to talk about in a little bit of like excess and and what we might call bad taste. But this mm-hmm. one and like obviously there's the moment with Beverly and the the you know the <laughs> the leg movements in the courtroom like that verge into like the hyperbolically ridiculous that we would be familiar with John Marsh, but those, the scene in the bedroom where they're having sex is one of the most outlandish scenes, I think, in the entire film. Um, <laughs> and it's all the more so because it just does it. It's just so out of place, but that's part of why I think it seems utterly fitting that this would appear in a John Waters movie. Like, I was like, this is what one expects of a John Waters film. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like Waters has always been invested in making... Um, all sex, but obviously especially heterosexual sex, look as ridiculous and unnatural as possible. <laughs> and there are a few, there there are a few sex scenes more unnatural than what goes on with <laughs> with Beverly and Eugene. Just like the the way their bodies just kind of seem to be like almost like they're being like pushed out of the bed by someone under the bed. Like it's it's and some also I will say some of the funniest things Kathleen Turner does in this movie is some of the some of the sexual noises she makes. It's like. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, I I feel like that, and I mean, this is I mean a, a different scene in a somewhat different register, but also like the only other scene I can think of in the movie that really has kind of any explicit sexuality is when um, Chip's friend Scotty is masturbating to a Chesty Morgan movie, and it, it's almost like the same thing. It's like it's it's like so hyperbolic, almost like violently kind of gyrating under these covers. It's it's it, it is kind of amazing, and you're right. I mean, for, for Waters, obviously even that's restrained compared to what some of the things he would have done 20 years ago. But I don't think it's any less funny or any less pointed, even if it is a right. little more, lit- I mean, literally covered up. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 what I kept thinking, the phrase that kept going through my mind as I was watching, as you say, both the Scotty and the, the Beverly Eugene sex scene was like the travesty of heterosexuality. Like <laughs> that's what Waters is sort of pointing us to is just what a fucking tragedy, what a travesty it all is. Like, <laughs> And I, that's part of what I loved about it was that it, you know, it just relentlessly doesn't let us get away with thinking about heterosex as being anything other than just absolutely sublimely ridiculous. Oh, exactly. Well, and and also, I mean, to your point, I mean, I think that I think the sex scene between uh, Beverly and Eugene it it does feel a little bit random. Although, to the extent there is uh, any kind of motivation, it seemingly is because Beverly had just killed someone that day, so it kind of got her. Yes, got her in the, the mood. mood. <laughs> and I mean, I do think that also Justin Whalen, who plays Scotty, is also like sort of peak 1990s boyish masculinity, like with the hair and just the sort of general ab- demeanor. I was just like, wow, this is taking me back. It really is. I mean, seeing the movie from from obviously the, the perspective of 2022, like he really does have that kind of peak, peak mid 90s. Like he could have stepped off the the set of Boy Meets World or something in terms of just a certain kind of, I, I will say it is funny watching this movie. Um, the sky is an example. And then, and then, Ch- I mean, that, that, that whole friend group, Chip, the Matthew Lillard character, um, yep. his kind of friend slash girlfriend, whose name I'm unfortunately forgetting. And then Scotty, like it is kind of funny, like seeing, and I, I, I don't mean this at all as a dig, but it is, it is kind of funny seeing, seeing waters, water's take on 90s teenagers um yep. which in some ways feels very much at the time but then of course also like he can't help himself so it's like 
well, they're going to like, you know, they're going to like 90s teen stuff, but then they're also going to like 60s era gore movies, and they're going to like 70s era pornography, and they're going to like, there's there's something almost referential about, uh, about like, the way he's handling then contemporary teen life, which is itself... I mean, I guess characteristic of his his own kind of peccadillos and everything, but is also really kind of funny in its own right. Yeah, I mean, this is a total non sequitur, but I the first time I ever saw Justin Whalen was actually in a Disney Channel original movie called Suzy Q. <laughs> I don't know if my, any of the other midnight, you know, eighty. If any of the other elder millennials out there who are now listening audience remember that movie, it is it is you know a peak Disney Channel movie of that era. Like he falls in love with like a, a ghost, basically is the gist of it. <laughs> But anyway, I don't want to get too far off that track. But I do, I like what you say, like, there is that sort of mosaic of, you know, cultural influences, you know, that is very symptomatic of, like, Waters' own, like, already existing filmography. And But he's also just so, with such a razor-sharp eye of, like, 90s culture. Like, I think about, but particularly, like, uh, Rosemary's obsession with, with Franklin Mint. And, like, if you grew up in the 90s, you knew yes. of Franklin Mint. Like, I had a... I will be the first to admit that, you know, as the, as the child of working class parents who I think aspire to, bourgeois, you know, petite bourgeois cultural tastes, like yeah. the, to attain something from the Franklin Mint was like a mark of, of to those who bought it, good taste, or at least that you were, it was so, cause because of its expense and because of the supposed craftsmanship that went into its making, that it felt like you were something that rich people would have. Like, you know, because, you know, obviously Rosemary's obsessed with, like, Fabergé eggs. Like, in, uh, so it's a a slight, you know, it's not a huge focus of the film, but I think it is, you know, symptomatic of Waters' keen eye for, you know, petite bourgeois culture of this particular period. I totally agree. And I think that is, I think that is something that, you know, is, is interesting about him as a, a filmmaker generally, is that he's somebody who, on the one hand, has extraordinarily consistent through lines throughout his movies both in like a big big scale themes stories whatever and then these little obsessions like certain a certain era of exploitation movies you know whatever and then at the same time he really does have a very keen eye for the moment that he's working in and it's it's interesting how those two things overlap with each other but i agree yeah the way the way that rosemary um, obsesses over the over the the, the Fabergé egg, and then, and then of course the way she's trying to haggle down the guy at the um at the it has a chip <laughs> in it, <laughs> and then and then uh, tries to get the fire poker, you know, like for the reduced part. Yeah, like there, he has a very good eye for like the particular moments of the times he works. And I mean, even the even the way the movie. I mean, this is you know, it's hard to even know how sort of how to even talk about this in terms of intentionality, but especially watching it now. It is funny just watching them, watching Serial Mom. I mean, Serial Mom just looks like a certain type of '90s movie. I mean, because I mean, yep. because it literally is right. But like, even that somehow was funny to me. Like the way that, yep. like, what the, the kinds of images and things he puts in this movie, and then there are just certain shots, especially of like the house from like this could be like the opening scene of Beethoven, or this could be you know what I mean, or like Father of the Bride, or like or the Steve Martin version. Like, just that even that becomes funny in, in a weird way, having yep. his type of stuff in like a relatively polished form of, of mid nineties mainstream yeah. movies. It's like a Chris Columbus movie. Yes. That's the perfect 
That, that's that's the perfect reference. Yes, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Yep, that's what occurred to me. Yeah. And also, like it's it's you see it elsewhere, like and you see it in Ricky Lake's performance in particular because yeah. she's so bad. Like compared <laughs> to say even like even like uh, Matthew Lillard, who I mean is a good actor. Like he yeah. he plays this chip role. Like that's sort of his career, kind of like because he, he plays it in Scream, he plays it in Scooby Doo. Like yeah. he he made his career out of playing this particular kind of character. And there's a lot of you know. There's a lot of praise for that, like, for going with a bit. But Ricky, like, because she's just not a good actress. Like, she's... And I mean, she's... And I think that's deliberate. But it's so glaring in comparison to, say, all of the other well-established actors around her. And so I... I, But again, I... Since this is Waters, I can't help but think that that's a deliberate thing. And even maybe deliberate even on Lake's part. Because it's also true that, like, many 90s movies would be full of good actors, and then there would be a few that were just, like, you know glaringly bad (laughs) (laughs) and i think also he's he's so invested in like just like the humor and even casting like i mean and of course also he's also very i mean very loyal to people right obviously you know having having you know discovered ricky like back with hairspray and everything but i think her performance yeah there there is like having her performance alongside the other ones in the family um even having and i I, i'm blanking on the name there is like a certain kind of category of like 90s era um sort of like character actresses that I really love. And of course I'm blanking on the name of the actress who plays Rosemary, but I feel like she also falls into that category very well of like has played this type of role probably many, many times. And maybe like actually her performance in this movie is not like so different from in a, you know, straighter, more conventional film, but there's something about that type of performance in this movie that hits a little bit differently just because of the, the, the way the movie's put together and the tone it's, it's going for. That makes it that much funnier. Right, and Mary Jo Catlett was the one who played Rosemary. Yes. Oh my god, yeah. And it's also just so striking, because Ricky Lake, I was just, I wanted to confirm the timeline, had already started her own talk show at this point. Like, yes. Like in 93, yeah. like the year before this movie came out. Yeah. So, it's, and so of course she's even part of this phenomenon of, not necessarily true crime, but sort of like, you know, the constant immersion and mass media that the film itself is so relentlessly skewering and so yeah there's that's just what's so great about waters is he's just so smart and how he how he puts this stuff together and how he, how knowledgeable he is about how to use this stuff yeah i want to say I, I could be misremembering this but i want to say like in the same way that waters gets joan rivers to like do like a fake joan rivers episode that um that rosemary and Dottie are watching um i think like a decade later in a I, I I think a dirty shame. I think there's like a similar like he had Ricky Lake do a fake Ricky Lake sh- a bit of her show to like be in the movie. So it is it, it is kind of funny how that sort of comes full circle in that way too. Oh, he is just so smart. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit then about because I alluded to this earlier. So if 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 the lay person knows anything about Waters, it's definitely I think that his sort of penchant for indulging in bad taste. Like he's someone who like deliberately makes movies that are supposed to be trashy. And I think that it's not as much in evidence as I've said throughout this podcast in this movie as much as it is in some of his earlier efforts from the 70s in particular. But it does emerge in key points, obviously the sex scene, but we have to talk about the eating because this is something we alluded to in the pregame and I I would feel remiss if we didn't talk about it here. Um, Because there are some scenes of really, not just eating, but there are some really grotesque scenes that emerge that I think are shades of the old waters coming through to sort of trouble the the waters of this otherwise if you'll forgive the pun the <laughs> waters of this otherwise rather placid film 
Yes. So, we can, you know, I think it even begins very early when, you know, Rosemary is sort of trying to kill the fly, and we see the fly sort of crawling all over the food, which food should not be f- videotaped. Like, or shouldn't... What am I saying? Videotaped. <laughs> I'm in the <laughs> 90s, I guess. Food should not be filmed. Like, I just feel very firmly about this. Like, food is just something that does not convey itself well in the moving image, I don't think, because there's always something vaguely grotesque about it. I don't know, maybe that's just me and my own hangups, but... I like that rule, though. Yeah, you know, sex sex on screen, food off screen. That's... Yeah. <laughs> it's just, like... I, like, you see the fly, like, crawling across the toast and the butter, and it's just, like... Yeah. There's just something viscerally upsetting and unsettling about it. Yeah. Uh, coupled with, of course, Rosemary's relentless sort of predatory desire to smash the fly which i can identify with but still <laughs> and then of course when she finally gets the fly a, a great uh you know close up on the kind of uh smashed fly against the white background and then of course that's when the written and directed by john waters um final uh final uh credit comes up right as if yep. to, as, as, as if to your point kind of saying like no really like i'm still i'm still going to give you some of what you expect from from me even in this yeah in this movie yeah. And he, I don't see that. Do they clean up the fly? Like it just. I think it just kind of stays there. I know. It's like, what is happening? Like, get rid of the fly. Oh, anyway. So there's that. And then, of course, there's the scene where she's like, you know, going after the couple who have been that one of whom Eugene has had to do like dental work on, which that's a whole another scene where we see the drilling. Yes. Oh, I Yes, exactly. I was just like. I'm literally feeling very perplexed right now. Like, I, <laughs> I'm just like, I just, uh, anyway. But I think, but she's, you know, we have this scene where they're literally sort of just devouring chicken, and there's a lot of unpleasant noises involved. And as we were saying in the, pre, in the pregame, like, chicken is a good food, and I like chicken quite a lot, but I don't like to think about eating it too much because there's just something very moist about the whole thing, and I'm just like, I just can't. So... But I, 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 I draw attention to all of this just because it's one of those moments where I think Waters is atten- like an ability to capture the grotesque is most in evidence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and especially connecting the, the grotesquerie to, I mean, especially in that, in that chicken eating scene, that, that, that couple is kind of like one of the more, I think, unsparing embodiments of kind of middle class, <laughs> middle class couple them. Like they're both mm-hmm. just like boorish people and like there is nothing more boorish about them than just these close-ups of them at one point i think it's the wife like it's like she does something with her she's licking her fingers but the way she licks her fingers like with her tongue it just it it is it is truly vile and then i and it's funny because you watch beverly watching them through the window and partly you you, there's like a, a little flashback thing right and it's like partly she's driven to homicide against them because she's a big bird lover, right? And, and they're, they're eating chickens. But also this part of you that's like, they need to die because they're gross and boorish right. and eating chicken in a gross way. And that's, there, there is something so funny, and but also so so gross about that. Yeah. And also, I, and the third reason is because they disrupted her birding adventure. Like she was supposed yes. to go birding and they disrupted because he was having a tooth problem. And, <laughs> and the wife was like, he might die of a heart attack by Monday. <laughs> That's right. And then they also need to die because she overhe- Beverly overhears them ignoring Eugene's advice. And then the husband begins to eat, again, not in quite as grotesque close-up, but these huge pieces of cream pie or cake or something like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's true. The, the food is just like, is a very vexed sight here. But I will say also one of the funnier, also kind of gross, but one of the funnier cuts in the movie, I think we go from a shot of... 
some gore scene in one of Chip's gore movies, and then it cuts right to the close-up of um, Beverly's meatloaf. meatloaf. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, that was... the perfect meatloaf. Yeah, that was one of the first, like, I had to rewind it just because I wanted to focus on just what a brilliant moment of editing it is. Because oh so often editing is something we don't even think about as, like, viewers. Yeah. But this is another sign of, like, Waters' keen eye as a director is just how well he knows how to put shots together yeah. to the maximum impact and to create these kinds of, you know, disgusting symmetries, if you will. Yeah, um, Absolutely. And I was also thinking about the couple eating, not to keep fixating on this, but he was also wearing his wedding ring, and I was just like, oh, where's the food? Like, I just, I, I don't know. I had so many vexed questions. I was just like, ugh. <laughs> but I also, like, I appreciate the way that, you know, it's so striking that the scenes where Beverly kills people are surprisingly understated for the most part. Like, they're yeah. not as full as grotesqueness as the eating. <laughs> In some yes. ways, they're almost sort of like, I mean, obviously she... The closest we get is when she impales Carl, who has jilted her daughter with a fireplace poker, and then she has to, like, shake off a bit of viscera. But, you know, even when she stabs the couple and pushes the, like, the AC out on his the man's head, or when she sets Scotty on fire during a concert, like, those are almost comedic, but they're not grotesque in the same way as the eating. So there's an interesting dynamic there that those are seen as less, like, horrifying moments than what you know, the, the, the seemingly normal, the more normal act of eating actually yeah. is. That, I think that's so true. Even even when she kills the math teacher, um, oh. you see, before you, well, I guess two things. One, she she gives she, she gifts him the fruitcake, which of course he kind of like, he kind of dismisses. But then after she kills him, and of course one of her big pet peeves is people chewing gum and he puts a stick of gum in his mouth right before she kills him, right before she runs him over with her car. And then the last thing you see is his bloody mouth and then the gum falling out right and then those examples of like yeah like the murder is bad but also like you know look at this gross food or digestion related thing that was that was going on that seems to sort of comically justify it in some ways Mm -hmm. no i like that comically justified that's definitely the the, and it's even true like with after she's killed patty Hearst by bludgeoning her with a phone like there's that brief moment like in between the shots where she's having a contest with Suzanne Summers and then it cuts and then you see like blood just trickling over her white shoe. Yes. Like, I mean, it's so per- like, it's a, both a perfect shot, but just the height of camp. Like it's just yeah. both at the same time. Like it's so appropriate given Beverly's fix hyper fixation on the shoe, but also like, it's just, it's so arch. It can't, but be camp. Like that's just, it's, it's so wonderful. Like it only hits me as I'm sitting here thinking about it. No, totally. And I'm also, I have to say, I'm glad we are like, part of this conversation is talking about like, you know, like shot composition editing. I mean, because I think Waters like is, I think Waters is the first to admit, like, I mean, he is not a, a visual stylist, like in the way that we think about some directors being like, I mean, you know, but I also, and also part of that is because he was working on these super low budgets back in the seventies, whatever, but like he definitely has a style and he definitely Mm -hmm. has a sense of, um, especially with some of these, you know, movies where he has some more money, like, he has a certain kind of formal control, even if it's, 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 and partly I think what's funny is, like, those moments that the form is so precise, and then what he's showing is so, you know, grotesque or outrageous or whatever, um, and that gives it, like, an added, an added bite. I mean, I, I do think there are certain scenes in this movie, I mean, one scene that we haven't talked about, um, just to kind of bring together a couple threads, is when uh, Beverly kills the woman who rents Annie, I mean, that scene, I, I mean, obviously, partly, we can talk about it, because, you know, the weapon of choice is the is the leg of lamb, but, like, 
that is a scene that I think is, it's obviously funny, but I think the way it's put together, like, there is something that gets under my skin about that scene. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that Waters is good at. Like, he's obviously very funny and, very, and like, part of his camp is, like, very distancing, but also, like, I think he does know how to use filmmaking to create scenes that aren't just funny, that actually, or, like, at least, like, part of what's funny about them is that they actually are genuinely kind of unnerving. And I feel like that scene, it it kind of whips itself up into this frenzy that is very funny and very ironic and very campy, but also, like, you know, it is a little jarring, like, to actually watch it, you know? Yeah, I mean, she's literally bludgeoning a woman to death with a leg of lamb. Like, that's pretty horrifying. I mean, again, going back to the horrors of food, like, that yes. seems to be, like, this is food horror, I suppose. You know, people heard of food porn, this is food horror. You know, because we see the blood spray across the TV screen, yeah. you know, and we, you know, even as the music continues to, pl- to play from The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, which I hate, Annie, just full confession, I do not like that. It's one of my least favorite musicals. I find it too cloying. So, I, you know, maybe I, too, would be driven to rage by hearing that playing, but also from someone not rewinding. Which, of course, all of this is, you know, these storylines wouldn't make sense to you know young people because they're like rewinding what does that what the fuck does that mean oh yeah exactly yeah it's like yeah i mean talk about it yeah a truly you know a truly 90s joke if there ever was one but a a great one i I know and i loved also i loved going to the movie like the movie um rental place i was just like oh that takes me back like you know these these movies are little time capsules yeah absolutely (laughs) So then maybe sort of to round out our discussion, speaking of time capsules, let's just sort of end on Suzanne Summers, like who, who, you know, obviously was reaching another moment of peak popularity because she was going to be in step by step. Like if I had to look to see when it was, uh, while I'm doing this, I'm going to look and see when that actually comes out. Um, so, you know, she was reaching another moment of her popularity, which she step-by-step came out in 91. So it was actually on the air while this was on. So, you know, she was in another peak of her popularity. <laughs> and it's another sort of very knowing performance. And she's also very much, an, you know, an icon in her of, her, of two different eras, the 70s and the 90s. So yeah. it's really, it, there's an interesting sort of palimpsest, if you will, of star iconicity going on here with Suzanne Summers. And I love the look on her, like she captures just her own too muchness so well because she's just like she's so invested in Beverly's story it's so it just seems of a piece with who Suzanne Summers is as a star like I don't I have no idea what she's like as a person but I get the sense that she's a bit of a diva mm-hmm. and it's like she's just leaning into that aspect of her of her extra di- diegetic persona which I really love absolutely even just the the outfit she wears to court like the fur coat and <laughs> over over the t-shirt and the hat i mean it, i mean it is and and i agree like i and this is something that i mean obviously it's it's sort of satiric in the moment but something else that i feel like continues to have satiric bite is like her kind of like her kind of easy fashioning of beverly i think at some point she's like this you know i can't wait to play this misunderstood <laughs> feminist icon and like like the, the way that she kind of like reaches for like the language of feminism the kind of like Kind of either, I don't justify, excuse, whatever, kind of like her desire to play this woman on this sort of tawdry TV movie or TV miniseries is like very, I'm sure it was funny then, but I feel like it it continues to have a certain kind of bite now in terms of the way that people kind of, you know, use and misuse kind of uh, the kind of language of feminism to kind of talk about or or kind of justify some of their own career choices. Right. And it's also one of those things that makes this movie even more relevant because obviously we're living in the true crime. Like it's everywhere. Like almost every limited series on Hulu or HBO is about true crime. And you, 
anytime there's a new high profile case, we have people emerging like, I can't wait to play this character. <laughs> so, and I, and I love that moment, like the, the concluding scene, which I alluded to earlier, like this sort of blank look of, you know, terror on her face when she realizes just what she's running into with Beverly. Like it's so over the top, but so oddly appropriate. And yeah. it just feels like the perfect use of Suzanne Summer's talents. Absolutely. And also it's funny until you said it, I really hadn't, I really hadn't thought about how much that final scene, and like the fact that they choose that Waters chooses to end on that confrontation between the two of them. Like it really does set up. I mean, these two, these two women and these two actresses, you're right, both of whom have such rich star personas um, that the movie is poking fun in, poking fun at, and playing off of, and having them together in that final moment is very. It adds a certain kind of final punch and i agree like that's a great it's it's a great shot of suzanne summers just kind of being like i think everybody it's funny the last few moments is everybody kind of realizing like oh my god she got off like i mean i think everybody knows she's guilty who who knows her and yet it's like and then when suzanne summers finally realizes like oh my god she really she really is doing these it's really it's a really great moment yeah and i and i i just love the way the whole finale and the the lead up to it just ruthlessly skewers our culture sort of obsession with with true crime and like turning it into an entertainment complex. And so I think that that, if anything makes this film even more relevant than when it came out, that would be it. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Misty selling the serial mom t-shirts outside the, the tell all book, the chip, um, chip asking the murdered, the murdered guy's brother. If he's, if he sold his, uh, his print and TV rights. Yeah. Every, everything about it is pretty, pretty spot on for the moment and still, still pretty relevant today. Which makes this film, you know, a perfect one to be watching in 2022. And I'm really glad that we decided to choose it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a pleasure. All right. Well, we'll be right back and we're going to probe with Matt a little bit deeper about what, like, some of his deeper connections to the film. Okay, so now comes the part of the show where we call Deep Cuts. I'm going to spare Matt and Are You Even Gay on this trip, although maybe next time, if he's kind enough to return to Queens, we'll have a nice Are You Even Gay for him. Can't wait. But instead, um, we'll do a deep cut. So maybe, Matt, you can speak a little bit about your prior viewing relationships with this film, like what drew you to it. Like, I know you've had a long-standing like, relationship scholarly relationship i assume it's only scholarly with john waters so uh, maybe you could speak a little bit about that or any other personal relationship you have with john waters i don't know i don't know about your personal life but <laughs> i'm happy to to delve a little a little deeper on both counts there i mean i will say my relationship with waters more generally is it um became scholarly although it, i didn't start out that way i will confess like i'm not somebody who like i i have some friends for whom John Waters movies um, of the 80s and 90s variety were very touchstone to their childhood. Like I made friends who grew up on Hairspray and Crybaby and stuff like that. Um, I I was not one of those people. I really didn't watch any Waters until college um, in which I, I mean, I remember seeing Pink Flamingos in a class on American independent cinema, you know, and, and for someone who a film and a director who I knew more more reputation than anything else, um, I was really struck, I guess this kind of somewhat goes back to what we were saying earlier, I was just struck by how much the movie had a punch, even though it was at that point, I think when I watched it, it was probably 25 years old, Um, of course it's older now, Uh, and I was really struck by how much his filmmaking really has, remains to have a visceral impact. I mean, Pink Flamingos is one of those movies that when you watch it today even, 
there are people who are like, if you show it to them for the first time, there are people who know its reputation and still are like, I cannot believe what I'm watching. You know? mm-hmm. And that, and I think that's, I think that's something that always stuck with me. And so I, I began to get more into his movies after that. And then when, when I was in grad school and I was talking about a dissertation topic, I, I knew I wanted to do something on queer stuff and on the seventies. And my, my advisor actually said to me, I hadn't really put this together myself, but he was like, you know, have you thought about focusing on waters as a way to kind of narrow some of these focuses and throat guy, whatever. And I started going back and rewatching movies of his that I hadn't seen. And I have to say, I, Serial Mom is not a movie that I saw until I began to really do more research on Waters more broadly. I ended up not not writing about Serial Mom in my dissertation. My, my dissertation only went up until Polyester. Um, but I saw Serial Mom... Um, actually, I, I think the first time I saw it was there was a big Waters retrospective. Um, I think it was 50 years since his first short. So this has been in 2014. Uh, in New York at the film, then the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I think now it's just Film at Lincoln Center. Um, so it was very funny to see Serial Mom in that sort of Tony, relatively mm-hmm. Tony context of Lincoln Center. Um, but I was, it really just stuck with me how much, and particularly for, I was somebody who I think up until then did, uh, was a little less questioning of the, I forget if we talked about this during the podcast or before the podcast, the narrative of, Waters was sort of shocking and outre mm. and provocative up until about the early 80s. And then once Hairspray happened, um, you know, things got more mainstream and less subversive and less interesting and whatnot. And I think Serial Mom really disabused me of that notion. Um, yep. which, is, which is not to say that every movie he's made um, in the 90s and 2000s, I think, is on Serial Mom's level. I, I, I do think Serial Mom is kind of Waters' last really great movie, I, although I have a lot of affection um to greater or lesser extents for the three movies he made afterwards, I feel like seeing this movie made me realize, like, A, he continued to be a very interesting filmmaker kind of throughout the decades that he was making movies, not just in this kind of 70s period. And it also made me really think about how much he is able to take the things about his work that really are provocative and funny and campy and subversive and sort of port them into different areas of culture and i think mm-hmm. one, i think the thing about serial mom that really struck me the most and that really impacted me besides all the things we talked about over the last hour of this podcast is just how much that's a skill that for all the ways that he's praised in in culture and for his movies his writing just his persona what, what have you i still think there's something weirdly underappreciated about that quality of his work and i think serial mom is like the probably the best encapsulation of that and and um and it's something that's always stuck with me about it. And it's just so fun to watch. Watching it again it for is, this yeah. was, podcast was such a pleasure, you know. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that you're, I think I agree with you on all counts, particularly, I mean, I've seen some of, like, Waters' late stuff, like, from the 2000s, like, whatever that movie is with Tracy Ullman, I can't even remember. A Dirty Shame. I, that's, I was just like, I cannot with this movie. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not just that it's bad taste, it's just bad. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I agree with you that, like, Serial Mom is... A woefully underappreciated film, precisely for all the reasons that we've delineated throughout this podcast. Like I've, I appreciate now more than I did when I watched it with my ex, mm. which we, I mean, my ex was kind of a monster, but he had a good, like a good movie sense. Like I'm glad he asked me to watch this way back in like 2011 or whatever it was, because yeah. you know I appreciated it and thought it was very, very funny back then. But now I'm like, okay, there's a lot going on in this film. And when I ask people about it, 
I get a lot of people are like, oh, I love that film. Like, you know, yeah. I was talking to my friend the other day who who lives in Baltimore. He's like, oh, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And so it's just really interesting to me that a lot of queer people have a touch to it. Although like you, I didn't see this movie until I was like in my, you know, mid 20s. So it's not that it was a cult. It was not a touchstone for me in that regard, but it was something that I remember. And there are so many moments from this film that I still think of fondly. Like, like I said, like the, you know, let the record say that I'm merely standing here. You know, those moments are like sort of stand out in my mind as like master classes of performance that has that really stand out. Absolutely. I will say actually one more thing. Um, and this this thought came to me when I was thinking back to us talking about the video stores. Actually, the very first my very first um, relationship with this movie, uh, I'm not sure if it's the case for you, being a child of the nineties, was actually not watching it, but it was seeing the video box cover at the video store. This was one of the, mm. the, 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 there's a handful of movies from that era, uh, from the mid nineties. I was too young to see any of them, but I would be, I would just stand there and look at the video boxes because they were so intriguing. Most of these were horror movies. So obviously like the Silence of the Lambs cover is a uh, one I always think of, but I remember seeing the cover for Serial Mom and being like, what is this? Cause it's Kathleen Turner holding the scissors. And it's like, this doesn't look like a horror movie, but that's a really, horror image and it mm. and i never given it and i didn't obviously see it for like two decades later but it was one of those things that always stuck with me as one of those like images you saw in the video store yep. um and the, and the things that could have lodged in the back of your mind that maybe you maybe you saw them years or decades later maybe you didn't but they they kind of planted the seed yeah i mean i don't remember serial mom in particular but i do remember lots of movies like that and i think that's one of those things that we've lost and i like we're only and i'm not talking like blockbuster i'm talking like your neighborhood video store like those were those things were much more visually evident yeah and so like i feel like this is you know going a little bit far afield but i do feel like those are some of the things that we the last generation well we, maybe we could call us the last vhs generation or the last physical media generation yeah. or the video store generation whatever we are we elder millennials <laughs> you know we are some of the last people who can remember those things and as you say like those that way of interacting with film and media left a long lasting legacy that i'm kind of sad we don't have anymore but hopefully maybe things will change now that people are you know realizing that streaming is not actually all that great I would agree with that. And I would say, too, just to go farther, farther afield for like two seconds, I feel like a lot of the movies that you talk about on this podcast, the kind of like gay movies of a certain 90s, 2000s era, I mean, I talk about this a lot with, with a friend of mine, like a lot of those movies I first knew as VHS or DVD covers, um, in yeah. part because I was too young or too uh, sort of you know, not out yet to feel like I could actually watch them. Um, but I could look at the video covers and there was something yep. particularly, uh, maybe era specific, um, but also very, um, impactful about that. Yeah. We're going to have to do a special episode. I think of this, of Queens about that exact phenomenon of like, you know, promotional materials and that how for many of us, that was our first access to gay cinema, even before we watched the movies, like whether it was in a video catalog or as you say, like at the movie, at the movie rental store, like that even before we were old enough to rent these films on our own, that was often our only access. So there's, I think there's something there. I think we might need to do a special episode with recollections of that sort. Absolutely. Recollections of the video store. Yeah. I like it. I think that uh, there's a lot of potential there. Absolutely. Oh 
right. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us here in Queens of the Bees. We really appreciated having you here. And this was a f one of the best conversations I think we've had in a very long time. So I think that's a true testament to your passion and your eloquence when it comes to, you know, Serial Mom and John Waters more generally. Well, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. It was so fun to talk with you about this movie and to be on the podcast. Well, we hope you come back because uh, we are we're switching over to a weekly schedule here at Queens. So every other week we'll be having a guest. So Matt is obviously our guest for this week. I have yet to nail down just yet who our next guest will be, but I promise it'll be someone exciting. So Matt, where can we find you on social media? I know you're not quite as like the social media maven that I am, but I know you're a little bit out there. So do you have any social media channels you'd like us to follow you on? Sure. Yeah, I, I am pretty delinquent on social media. I have to say I am on Instagram at uh, MJPC1991. Um, I'm a fairly infrequent poster. So maybe if you look me up there, you will not be satisfied, but, but I am I am there. Um, but I, I'm also on, on, on Facebook, but I'm a, unfortunately pretty infrequent poster there too. So maybe I'll start. Right, not, no, you, I think you are making a very wise and sensible decision <laughs> to, to stay off of social media as much as possible. Um, as someone who spends far too much time on there, I can attest that that is not always the best for one's mental health. <laughs> But if you want to follow me, if you haven't already done so, you can follow me on Twitter at TJ West and the number three, on the Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. You can also subscribe to my newsletter over at Substack, which is called Omnivorous, where I do write about gay stuff pretty frequently, because that's what I do. So love it if you could follow us there. We will also be launching our own Instagram here for specific to Queens, but that's also forthcoming. I know I keep talking about it, but one day we'll actually have it up, up and running. And of course, you can always download us or listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, etc. Please don't forget to rate us or and review us if you have a little extra time. Every little rating and review helps to build our visibility. And for a little podcast like ours, that's really, really important. So I think that's all we have for this week. So for Queens of the Bees, I am your co-host, TJ. Uh, and I'm Matt. And we thank you so much for listening to us. And we will be back with you in a week. Hey, hey.